But that being said, here we go. Abraham, this is the third week of our series. And Abraham, first week we see the call of Abraham. Abraham, leave your family. Go to a land I'll tell you about later. Whenever you get there, I'll let you know you're there. So Abraham, you know, he, he packs everything up. He takes his family. He takes his livestock. He takes his nephew, Lot, with him. Uh, last week we saw that, that there be, there's a famine that comes in the land. There's a shortage of food. And so Abraham decides all on his own to go down to, to Egypt. Now this would be northern Egypt, right? It would be at the very top of, of Egypt there where the um, Mediterranean Sea, where the Nile begins to come through. And so he leaves the Negev Desert, goes to low, uh, upper Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, I know you can't see that from there, but I'll be more than happy to provide you with all my slides if you have an email address. Um, you just see the red line, and when the red line is at its southernmost point, the southernmost point, uh, this is where Abraham went last week. Uh, of course, Abraham decides, and he tells his wife, uh, don't tell people we're married, tell people you're my sister, because you're a very beautiful woman, and, and the Egyptians don't care too much about the men from somewhere else, and so they'll kill me just so they can get to you. Uh, Sarah, I'm sure reluctantly agrees to go along with this. We find Sarah in Pharaoh's household because of her beauty. So Abraham, he was right. You're going to get the attention of the Pharaoh and, and, and uh, so you can save my life by doing this. She goes to the house of Pharaoh. Something happens. The, what the Bible alludes to is there's something physically that takes place every time that Sarah comes into the presence of Pharaoh to where Pharaoh knows something's wrong with this lady. Not physically, but when she comes around me, it, it affects me. So something's wrong. He gets to the bottom. And then he, a pagan, teaches Abraham, why would you lie to me? Why would you lie? Why would you put my house in jeopardy? And so here's what he does. Abraham has gained a lot of money. Abraham has gained a lot of servants. Right? His lot has increased. And now we, we end chapter 12 with Abraham going back to the place he started. All right, just remember this. If God doesn't call you somewhere, why don't you keep your feet planted until God tells you to move? All right, so Abraham decides on his own to go to Egypt. God brings him back to where he was at the beginning of chapter 12. And so now we're in Genesis 13. As Abraham comes back to the land where they've settled in the Negev Desert, Lot is there, his nephew who came with him from, uh, from Genesis chapter 11. And Lot has also increased. He's done really well. His livestock has increased in size. The number of servants he has has increased in size. Abraham, we know that his lot has certainly increased. Just, I mentioned last week, Abraham comes back from Egypt with a, with a handmaiden to his wife named Hagar. And that's going to set up, uh, it, it continues to be something that divides the countries today. So Abraham decides to go to Egypt, leads to Abraham making other bad decisions, and we're still dealing with the consequences of those bad decisions today. So he comes back, and here Lot is, and I'm going to read the scripture. I just want you to kind of see what's going on before we dig into the word. Abraham comes back with all of his stuff, and Lot has all of his stuff, and they're living together in a place where the land just will not support two people with as much stuff as they have. I'm using stuff for a reason. You with me? They've just got a bunch of stuff. In life, I'll just tell you, be careful. Uh, most of the time, the more stuff you get doesn't equal a happier lifestyle. But the more stuff you get, 
causes a lot more drama in your life and requires a lot more of your attention to handle. And so this is where we get to. Uh, let me show you the four points I want to talk to you that we find in the passage. Uh, one, we see the problem. There's going to be quarreling that breaks out between Lot's servants and Abraham's servants because they're trying to, to use the same resources. Uh, then there's the solution. So Abraham and Lot are going to get together and Abraham's going to come up with a solution of how they can fix the problem. Then there's the choice. And what Abraham does is Abraham doesn't say, even though he is the patriarch here, Abraham could say, I'm going this way, you go that way. What Abraham says is, Lot, you choose which way you want to go. Choose Sodom or choose Canaan. Now, Canaan is a barren place, right? Canaan is not... If You can go today, and, and, and I've been, and you, I don't know how they grow anything there. There's not very much you see anywhere, and there's not very much water in the area. So it looks literally like a desert wilderness. You're coming into Jerusalem, and until you come over like the Mount of Olives, it just looks like a desert. And then you come over, and then there's some greenery, but it's still Jerusalem just in the middle of the desert. And so here, here's the choice. Lot, you can go over there where it's the fertile plain. You can go over there where you can take your livestock, and they can eat of the grass and and, and the resources of the field, or you can go over there to the desert, to the wilderness, to a, a barren land. And then finally, there's conclusion, because in most of this chapter, what Abraham is doing is solving his own problems. And then all of a sudden, God speaks, begins to speak again to Abraham, we see that take place at the end of the chapter. So chapter 13, if you have it in your copy of God's Word, if not, follow along on the wall. Abram went up from Egypt to Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had, been form where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built an altar, and Abraham called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was a quarreling between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we're relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zor, was well watered. Everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. And Lot had separated from, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and look south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. So this is the title deed for the, the land of Canaan in Scripture, right? God's given the land and no one can take away what God gives. Verse 16 says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that anyone, anyone who 
Uh, if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you take this, your word, that you allow us to apply it to our life, that you give us understanding. And that today we wouldn't hear some sermon that a man has put together, but we would hear directly from you, Lord. So speak to our hearts and minds now, right where we are, in the circumstances that we're in, and we'll give you all the praise, glory, and honor. It's in the beautiful, the precious, holy, the powerful name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior. So we start out simply here. We start with the problem, the quarreling, and the fighting that's taking place in the first seven verses of Genesis 13. And I think it's important for us, once again, I've said it, to remember what has brought us to this point. The chapters preceding, going to Egypt in the first place, has now led to this this argument. The Bible tells us the land could not support both of them. Evidently, the Canaanites and the Parasites controlled most most of Palestine, which meant that Abraham and Lot had to kind of stay in neglected areas. Does this make sense? So you have the Canaanites who rule and govern the land. This goes all the way back to Noah's descendants, right? So the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they both controlled the good portions of the land. So Abraham and Lot are having to settle in places that's been neglected by the Canaanites. And so they're basically just living off what little bit of the land they can find. And once they stay there a while, they pitch their tent somewhere else so that they can take care of their livestock. Well, these neglected areas are not sufficient for as many herdsmen and livestock as they both have together. So this is a very practical problem. You with me? This, this isn't something that's a metaphor for something else. This is a very practical problem. They just have so much stuff that they can't live together anymore. They can't travel together anymore. The land just simply will not support it. If they were living today, here's what I could say. If they would have simply stayed middle class herdsmen, they could have continued to live together as family. But when they became upper class herdsmen, when they had so much, now it meant they had to separate from one another. I would, I would share with you, I think it's important for us to realize it's the resources they have according to the passage of Scripture where the emphasis is that has caused the schism. So here's the first thing I want to say. Money is good. You don't hear me say that very much. I'm usually the guy who makes sure even to the extreme, that you don't hear me preaching a prosperity gospel. But let me just say this. Money is okay, and money is good, and whether you like it, love it, uh, lump it, you need it. So there's nothing wrong with stuff in and of itself. There's no inherent evil in stuff. But when you begin to long for that more than you do for God, when you begin to long for stuff more than you do your family, now there's an issue here. Your stuff becomes an idol. Abraham's gone to to Egypt and has collected as much as he can. His livestock has grown. He has so much that there's no way he by himself can take care of it all. So now he has to have herdsmen to help him take care of his flock. Remember, God called Abraham to go and leave his family. just, Just this notion of, Abraham, travel with me. I'll take you where you need to go. I'll look after you and provide provision as you get there. And then all of a sudden, Abraham starts thinking on his own. 
And this is where things get dangerous in our life. Whether we're Christians or whether we don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in time, this is a dangerous thing when we begin to depend on ourselves. Rodney sang a song about that, right? I, I can't even walk, God, without you holding my hand. We're most of us, we're not just walking, but we're at a dead sprint doing it our way, trying to accomplish what we want to accomplish. We define life almost in such a manner as to say, the one who has the most stuff wins in the end. And to that I would simply say, you can't take any of it with you. I remember this godly lady who used to go to this church, and, and um, she's passed away, she didn't go somewhere else. And uh, she got really irritated at, at someone when the church was trying to purchase some land. We wanted to buy a family life center. and She just had all she could take and she just said to me, I hope when they bury her they dig a hole big enough to put all her stuff in. And uh, I thought, that, that's funny. Uh, it was funny. Uh, it was true. But there, there was a lot of wisdom in that. Essentially, you're working today to... To, to gain things that somebody else can enjoy, right? You're working as hard as you can today to accumulate all that you can for somebody else to enjoy one day. And I would say to you, that's really not living at all. We need money. We need resources. We need stuff. We need to take care of our families. But we ought to enjoy our families at the same time. When I'm working so hard to... Uh, acquire wealth or land or whatever it is I'm trying to purchase in my life, that, that it becomes a hindrance to the relationships I have with my family, then it's time for me to sit down and get my priorities straight and begin to spend time where time really is enjoyed and life is really lived. And that's with the people that you love. And so we, we see the, the problem. It's excessive prosperity. It's too much wealth. It's too much livestock. It's too many herdsmen. It's too many handmaidens. The Bible reveals four prominent reasons for the fighting among God's people. Not just Abraham and Lot, but if you read throughout Scripture, there's usually four primary reasons that God's people argue and fight with one another. First is this, excessive prosperity. When we have so much, we don't even know how we're going to uh, take care of it or what we're going to do with it. Uh, Genesis 13 is a prime example of this, but we see it all throughout Scripture. We see Israel begin to gain a bunch of wealth under the kingship of David and then Solomon and, and lose sight of God, right? So all through the Old Testament, we see Israel begin to be a place of great wealth. And then as soon as they become a, a place of excessive prosperity, then someone comes in and conquers their land destroys the temple, takes them into exile. They, they come back, they build their temple. Very humble beginnings, right? They, they love God's word against. They delight in, the, in the, the law of the Lord. And then they begin to exceed. They begin to have excessive prosperity. And then we see this repeated again and again. Romans 14 is a good example of where arrogance and pride among God's people leads to infighting amongst the family of God. So there's times when we, we get in big uh, fights because we have too much. I can remember one time when, uh, uh, Rodney, I don't even remember. I guess maybe I had been the pastor about five months or six months. All right, I, I was new to this whole thing. And I remember having several deacons meetings where we couldn't hardly do anything because it led to fighting because we had too much money in the bank. 
I'm not kidding you, right? It wasn't that anybody was being malicious or anybody was being bad. It was now we didn't know how to handle like excessive money. We had struggled in the past. We were a small congregation. All of a sudden we had all the money in the world and we were just kind of sitting on it. And so we have people who say, we need to use this money to do ministry. We need to use this money to, it's not ours, it's God's money. And so we've never had this much sitting in the bank, so we don't know what to do with it. So now you got, well, however many deacons you had, then that many opinions, and then some new pastor who's never done it before, he had an opinion. Ultimately, we built a family life center out of that. But until we brought that before the church, that was a struggle. That was a lot of praying over what are we, what's God calling us to do as a church. We never used to fight about money before then because we didn't have any to fight about. Anybody know what I'm talking about in life? One of the things I, I hate is when someone passes away and they have a lot of wealth that's going to go somewhere. You will never see families treat other family members the way you do as when somebody dies and there's something for somebody to get from it. It is ridiculous. I just always suggest, give it to the church, it's tax deductible. You know, you can pass the tax deduction along to your family. We'll take the funds. No, it's true. And then arrogance and pride. We become boastful. We become really puffed up. We, we've accomplished something in our life. Friend, you need to remember what Rodney's saying. You can't even walk without God holding your hand. You can't take the next breath you're going to take without God providing the air for you to take it. And so we have to be careful when we become arrogant and prideful. The third thing is selfish ambition. When we begin to be more important and our wants begin to be more important than what God wants, or particularly in this reference, what God's people are supposed to do. There, you, you'll see this in every church, not only ours, but in every church and, and not here now. But, but when somebody decides they know what God wants for this church. Nobody else knows it. God hasn't revealed it to anybody else. We're all praying. But this person is assured that what they want to do is what we better do. Selfish ambition. Sometimes selfish ambition is not so you get something. It's just this. I know the right answer for everybody else. I know what everybody else ought to be doing. By the way, I'll just tell you, I don't believe a church should be run that way. Matthew 20 is a good example of this. I, I think that everybody has a say in God's church. I would never have the arrogance, pridefulness, or the selfish ambition to try to tell the church what they need to do. I'll share with you what God lays on my heart. But there's no way. I don't want that responsibility. I'm just a man. There's tons of things I would like to see happen. I'm not going to share them all because you know, it makes somebody mad. There's a lot of things I would like to see done differently. Not only in our church, but, but in our association, in our, in our convention now. There's lots of things I'd like to see done. But I'm not presumptuous enough to, to say that I know what's right for everybody else. And so it's why we come together collectively. It's why we have committees and, and boards that meet and then present that to the church so that the church can pray and that collectively we can all come to some kind of an agreement as to where we feel God's leading us as a church. And then the other is moral compromise. 
when we look at Scripture, we see these four things that will always incite rebellion and arguing and quarreling and fighting amongst God's people. Having too much stuff, being too arrogant or prideful, having selfish ambition where you know the right answer to every problem for everybody else, and finally, moral compromise. Joshua 7 is a great, warns about us, uh, danger of tolerating sin for Joshua in the camp. For the church, we see the same warnings to the New Testament believers. You can't tolerate sin within the church. Not and, not and anticipate God blessing that. And so these four things we see. And so four more facts. You ready? From what we just learned about believers. Uh, Satan loves to divide the saints. There is nothing that Satan likes more than when God's people can't agree with each other. When Satan can divide us, it leads to quarreling. When he can sow discord among the brethren. I told you, if you look through church history, what you'll find is that as long as the church was being persecuted from outside, from the Romans, right, from um, just throughout history, what you find is that when the church is opposed from outside and there's great persecution, the church thrives. The church grows. Multitudes, leaps and bounds. But, but what you find is that Satan changed his tactic a little. And now, look in America. How, much, how many problems? Now, I, I know there's some things we don't agree with that have been passed as laws. But, but how many of you had to, uh, in secret... Come to church today in hopes that you would not be found seen, that you would not be caught with the Bible, that someone wouldn't come in the back door and arrest us all. And then because it's so easy to come to church, we've sometimes forgotten what it is we really have in community with one another. We've forgotten what it means to be the people of God. And when there is... Persecution, not from outside the church, but among the brethren to one another. The church flounders and the church fails at its mission. When you have a church that begins not looking outward to lost people, but begin looking inward to what we're going to do and how we're going to fight and our divisions, what you find is a church that is unraveling. And if it's not already dead, it's on its way to becoming dead. How many of us have been persecuted for our beliefs? And about all we can come up with is, well, a peer made fun of me because I was a Christian. That's really not persecution. Not when we look at the early church, when they're being crucified upside down because they don't, they don't feel worthy to be crucified the way Christ was. And this persecution from within, here's what it revealed, genuine faith. Second thing, God commands us to keep unity of the Spirit. If we're really going to avoid these problems, then we have to be looking to the unity of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that can bring unity among believers. Even when we can't agree, we can still love and live together. Amen? Now, we can't do that in America now. Right? If we don't agree on everything, then, then we become enemies. I remember a time, even in my short lifetime, that you could agree with each other, go out and eat, and by the time you're through eating, still laugh and joke around together. Now, if, we, if we're not in the same political party, if we don't belong to the same church denomination, then we're, we're enemies of each other. It's ludicrous. I don't understand it. 
Every single one of you have a God-given right in the country that we live to vote. I don't care how you vote. You're still a brother or sister in Christ. You're not going to tell me how to vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But however we vote, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've made this thing out to be something like if we don't, if we don't vote for the same people, then we can't be friends with each other. We can't, we can't worship together. All right? You're a Democrat. I can't worship with you. You mean you voted Republican straight ticket? We can't worship together. Everybody has the right to vote and free speech. This country's so great because God's given us these freedoms through men and women who've laid their life down so we don't have to agree. Isn't that something? What makes America great is we don't have to agree. We each have our own values and mind and reasons. And people died and lost their lives so you could. The Bible warns against those who would destroy unity within the body and the way the Bible describes it unity is destroyed through greed through pride through slander through gossip through innuendo and such individuals should be warned and if they don't repent then they will destroy the body if they do not remove themselves from the body nobody likes church discipline everybody needs church discipline so here they are, they're arguing, number two, the solution is this. Lot, which way you want to go, man? You want to take the easy road or you want to take the hard road? The easy road here is going to lead you and your family into some places, man, where there are abominations of God taking place. Or you can go out here in the wilderness this direction. Here's what, uh, let me just throw four facts up about Abraham, four facts about Lot. Here's what you see. Same choice, same circumstance. This is what they did. Here's facts about Abraham. Abraham wanted to solve the problem peaceably. As Christians, we ought to do the very best we can to live both with God and man peaceably. Abraham goes to Lot and says, Listen, man, our people are fighting with each other. We need to settle this thing. We need to settle it peaceably. This is a lost ark today, not just in our country. This is a lost art across the world that when we don't agree, when there's quarreling that takes place, that we come together, we sit down and say, how can we peaceably reconcile this? Here's the second thing. Abraham was willing to lose what might be gained in the short term for what he knew would be gained in the long term. Why? So that he might see peace between him and his relative. Everybody's got those relatives that maybe Lot wasn't quite one, where they only look out for themselves, where it, it's them above anything else. They're every once in a while, now not at Buffalo, but at some of the other churches around here, every once in a while, somebody comes in and it's their way above everybody else's way. But Abraham said, I want to keep peace in the long run. And the only way I can really keep peace with Lot is to give him the decision. Let him decide where he wants his flocks to go. Abraham believed that God would take care. Whatever the future may hold, God would be with them. 
Y'all know Abraham was, was crazy in a sense. Abraham could look out and say, you can go over there where it's green and lush and you can survive. And I'll go over here where the ground's rocky and hilly and there's no, no water. And Abraham would look and say, God will take care of me there. He goes a little even further than that when God says, take your son, the one that I'm going to bless the whole world through, and sacrifice him. Abraham's just like, okay. Yeah, Isaac, go get the wood, man. We got a trip to make. Abraham just trusted God. He just, no matter what comes our way, I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to tell you the truth. There's times in my life where I realize I'm not trusting God. I've got on this kick where every day I'm checking numbers about the coronavirus. If you're not doing that, praise God, don't start. Just wait till they tell you what happened. But I'm checking. This is how many each state has. This is how many people. This is the percentage of people dying with it. I just trust God. This is, I've just determined this past week. It's just, I'm going to stop looking at this stuff. I, I, I'm not going to let these numbers dictate fear in my life. These numbers already cause me to be concerned. And that's about as far as it should go, brothers and sisters. We ought to be concerned about what's going on around us. And we ought to be more concerned about other people. If we really love God, we really love others, we'll do all that we can do to make sure that those who are vulnerable don't get sick. That doesn't mean you've got to shut up in your house for, for three months. It doesn't mean we've got to shut every store down. But it does mean that every person plays a vital part. And if we all do our part, we can see this thing stop. We can see the trend turn. We can see a downward um, slope but but if we just all treat this thing as if though we're the only one who matters and we're going to do what what we want to do we, we, look you can stay home if you want to i'm going to lowe's you can wear a mask if you want to i'm not and the next thing you know someone's giving something to grandma we don't need to be fearful we just need to be responsible i mean just be responsible and we can trust God, right? I mean, I, I just trust God that if I'll stay some distance away from people I don't know, if I wear a mask when I'm going in some place that I can't stay away from people I don't know, that because I've tried to honor God by honoring those He's placed in authority above me, that He'll take care of me. And this is what Abraham did. Abraham just, Lot chooses which way you want to go. God's going to take care of me either way. So whatever you need to do, let me know, and I'll go the other way, and then we can be at peace with one another. This morning, just the question. Have you given everything to Christ so that you can honestly say, I trust God, no matter what happens, in the long run, He will take care of me. I'm not just talking about a virus. In your life, with your family, with your finances. In every other scenario, have you really trust God with your life? Your relationships. Have you given them all to God and just said, God, here it is. I'll do my part, but I trust that if I do my part, you'll honor this. Contrast this with Lot. Here's some facts about Lot that you... Lot really wasn't that concerned with solving the problem peaceably. It's, now, Lot, it doesn't say that Lot went looking for a fight. But Lot wasn't so much concerned about solving the problem. In fact, he chose what was best for himself over what was best for others. 
You ever have to make a decision in your life? Maybe it's a new job where you've been invited or you've been uh, accepted into something or you've been given a job invitation where you know you look at it and from a career standpoint, this is a wonderful thing. But from a standpoint of your family, this is not that wonderful of a thing. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I can take this job where I can really make all that I've ever wanted. I accomplish all the dreams I've ever had of a career. But if I do this, I'm not going to be able to be with my family but two nights a week. Lot would have taken the job. Abraham would have rather stayed with his family. And by the way, if you have a job that you travel with, I'm not talking about you. I promise, everybody's got to work. And if you've got to travel to get it done, travel to get it done. You can't be present all the time, but when you are at home, you should be present, Right? Your family ought to have your love, your attention. They ought to know when you are home that they matter. The second thing is, which I, I just said, I didn't even look up, um, that, that Lot chose his occupation, his herds, his livestock. This is where they're going to succeed. This is where my Lot is going to grow. And he chose that over his family. And the second, he chose immediate blessing over the future. You ever seen where they'll ask you questions, kids, they'll say something like this, um, would you take a million dollars today or would you take me giving you a penny today and tomorrow giving you two and the next day doubling that and the next day doubling that? Y'all, have y'all seen these things? And, and, and adults generally say, like what kids generally say, I'll take the million, right? And in doing so, you have lost a ton of money over the long run. You've been short-sighted. You've seen a quick blessing where you failed to stop and say, hold on. Over the long course, this is much more fruitful than just taking it all at once. I love when when I was a math teacher and I would would pose problems like this to my kids and I would say, what's more profitable to take a million dollars today or we're talking exponential growth, right? I'll give you one today, two tomorrow, four the next day, eight the next day, 16. And uh, it, it never failed that almost always the kids would say, I'll take the million dollars. It, it, you don't lose in that situation, right? I mean, you're okay either way. But sometimes our short-sightedness can prevent us from uh, all that God wants to bless us with. And so we look and immediately we see a blessing in the immediate but we're too short-sighted to see what it is God really has planned for us in the long run. And Abraham was concerned about the long run. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars. The land had been promised to him. And so Abraham chose the long run over the short. So who won? We look at this story And at this point in Scripture, we really don't know what's happened other than Lot has went to the fertile land and Abraham is out in the wilderness. Ed Dobson, I like what he said. He he took kind of the same thing. He said, uh, here's Lot's failures. He chose himself over others and his family. And he chose the immediate over the future. You can't compromise with evil. 
you, you, you can't make the bad decisions. You just can't justify them because of the immediate you get. I remember that uh, a baseball coach told me one time, he said, you can't sleep in the sewer and not get dirty. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. He was talking about my friends and the friends I had. And he said, Bruce, you can't sleep in the sewer and not get dirty. I would submit the same thing to us today. And what Lot is doing is Lot is choosing to go to the sewer, hoping that he doesn't get dirty. James 1, 14 and 15, it, it, it graphically pictures the steps to spiritual death. And it says this, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Mark this progression carefully. Spiritual death or death comes as a result of temptation that leads to desire, that leads to sin, that leads to death. I just wanted to share one last thing. I think I have it up, Johnny, just uh, the last slide. When we think of sin, when we think of people who have morally compromised their life, we typically think of people that they woke up and made one decision and all of a sudden their life has been taken from them. This is the truth of the matter. The truth is, it's not one simple decision. But moral compromise, it begins with a tiny step in the wrong direction. Casting crowns, I believe, sing a song, Slow Fade. I believe it was Casting Crowns. And the notion was you don't end up in an adulterous affair in one day. That there are little small decisions and small steps that you take daily that lead you down the path that eventually you find yourself sexually immoral before God. And having committed sin against not only your own body, but against that of your spouse. People don't wake up one day and decide today it would be a great day to become a drug addict. But they make small mistakes and moral compromises. And before long they find themselves a slippery slope that they can't turn back from. No one ever intends to fall into sin. The end of this chapter, we see God speak to Abraham. If you notice, the beginning of the chapter starts with God, uh, Abraham trying to call out to God. But it doesn't refer to God speaking anything back to Abraham. So Abraham goes to Lot and says, Lot, we need to, uh, we need to separate. After the separation between Abraham and Lot, here's what we find. That God begins once again to speak to Abraham. I would submit to you that when God called Abram, he gave Abram a couple of commands, right? Leave the country and leave your family. And Abraham took his nephew. And after that one small decision, we begin to see tiny little compromises 
Now, Abraham's still a man of God. Abraham's still a man of faith. But we see him making decisions for his own life and where they end up. I would just suggest to you today, friends, um, none of us are smart enough, powerful enough, rich enough, talented enough to decide what's best for our life because we didn't create ourselves. No, we have a creator, God. And if you put your faith and trust in Him, really put your faith and trust in Him, I can promise you this, you end up on the right side of things. I'm going to pray. Okay. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for each one that's here today. For those who may be watching by Facebook. And Lord, I pray that you would instill within our hearts the urgency that moral compromise and sinfulness does not begin with a huge step, but begins with tiny steps in the wrong direction. And Lord, we see this throughout the, uh, the story of Abraham and Lot. And, and this story's not done with Lot because we'll find Abraham having to rescue Lot in the not-too-distant future. So Lord, we pray that you give us Wisdom, strength, courage. Lord, as we see things on the news each and every day, as we see numbers that, uh, Lord, have a tendency that they could strike fear within us, help us to remember that you haven't given us that spirit. That doesn't come from you. That you've given us as your children a spirit of power, not a spirit of fear. But Lord, help us to also be mindful of others. Lord, we may not be worried that we're going to come down with something. But when we're going somewhere where we can't stay away from everyone, Lord, help us to remember others that we may come into contact with later. And if we would just practice these few simple things that really aren't, God, if we're being honest, they're, they're not life-altering things to wear a mask in public and to stay six feet away from other people. Lord, we can do that. And we pray that you would honor our obedience and that we would see your hand move in a mighty way that we would see this disease obliterated wiped out we would see those who are sick from it now coming home healthy and we'll give you all the praise and the glory for that lord speak to our hearts and minds now in christ's name we pray amen